Matthew 28, and we could have gone to a lot of different places. There's four different accounts of what she just read. All of them include basically the same story at just a different angle. And it's two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Seems like a lot of people were named Mary back then, right? And they were the first eyewitnesses who testified to the resurrection. And it's interesting. If you read any of the four gospel accounts, what really strikes me this week as I was praying and meditating uh, on the reality of the resurrection is how careful all the biblical writers were, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to record the emotions of the women who came to that tomb. In fact, I studied it this week, and there are at least six to eight different words in Greek. You know, the New Testament is written in Greek, and there are six to eight different words in Greek to describe the emotional experience those women had when they faced the empty tomb. Check this out. Alarmed, astonished, afraid, perplexed, frightened, and they marveled. And then the passage today, two different Greek words. They looked at the empty tomb, and they had fear, but when they left, they had what? Great joy. In Greek, that's megas charis, great joy, abounding rejoicing. They were thrilled. They marveled. They went from confusion and from fear to faith and to joy. And it's interesting to me that I think many of us, even some Christians included, maybe some in this room, sometimes we stand looking at the empty tomb and we're perplexed too because we don't fully grasp the significance, how profound of a truth and reality this is. I remember 12 years ago when I found out we were pregnant. We'd been married less than two years, and I woke up one morning, I walked in the bathroom, and I saw this strange little device that my wife had left for me there, and it looked like a kid thermometer to me or a magic marker. I didn't know what it was, and I looked at it. I picked it up. There was this very faint, <laughs> very faint, fuzzy line there, and it did, I was perplexed. I stood there. I was confused. I was perplexed. And then when my wife told me what this little thing is, it's a pregnancy test, um, I was afraid. <laughs> there, was great, there was great fear. Um, but you know what? When the reality dawned that this is good news, I had great joy. I had great joy. It, 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 it set in what this meant, that my life <laughs> would never be the same again, right? In a good way, in a good way. Now she's pregnant with our sixth child, and man, I could find one of those pregnancy tests in the dark. I think we, we own stock in one of the cheap pregnancy tests that Walgreens sells. Um, but many of us, if we're honest, we may be like the early followers of Jesus, looking at the empty grave, scratching our heads. We're afraid, we're perplexed, we're unclear, or you're like me, standing looking at that pregnancy test, not really fully understanding uh, what it represented. So this morning, our sermon is simple. I just have a couple of points that we're going to look at. Number one... How do we know that the resurrection is true? Because it all hinges on this. This is not <clears throat> long ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? This is not once upon a time. This is uh, not in Middle Earth, uh, in a hill, under a hill, in a hole in the ground. <clears throat> it's not any of those things. This is a historical fact, a reality. And I want to prove that to you as best I can this morning because, listen, I know that sometimes on Easter, skeptics come. And that's okay. You are welcome here. Um, you may want to remain unidentified, and that's okay. I was a skeptic for 22 years of my life, and I snuck in church on Sunday and did my best to tune out the preacher. Um, but I hope you'll listen this morning, because here's what I want to do. If you're a skeptic, a secret skeptic, I just want to put a rock in your shoe. That's all I want to do. I want to put some, a rock in your shoe that when you leave here, it bothers you a little bit. You're like, you know, I thought, 
thought this was all just myth. I thought this was ridiculous. It was a hallucination. It was just a, a story that the early disciples, goodness, they, my gosh, they, they, they lost their, their most precious teacher and mentor, and so maybe they fabricated this whole idea of a resurrection. I didn't know all the evidences that surrounded that. So if you're a skeptic, I want to put a rock in your shoe. But listen, I also know this. Many of you are like me. We wouldn't say that we doubt the resurrection, right? We wouldn't say that we doubt it but we're carrying around a little tiny thimble full of joy from it. There's no doubt in that thimble. It's full, all half ounce that that thimble represents. Some of us are carrying a quart bucket. Some of us maybe have a gallon or five-gallon bucket. What I want to do this morning is increase the size of your bucket, okay, so that your joy may be full, so that you, you completely understand the significance, the profundity of what the resurrection really represents. So that's the first that's the first point. How do we know it's true? And the second point is, what does it mean? So I want to go through these as quickly as I can to get through the good stuff, okay? So the evidence. Here's the evidence I want to talk about, okay? There are five or six things that we can see, and many of them are in this story right here that Melissa read earlier, Matthew chapter 28. There's an empty tomb, first of all. You've got, you got to grapple with that, right? There is an empty tomb, um, and there's a missing body. The body's not there. Uh, the corpse is not there. It's nowhere to be found. So those two things are there. And then there's multiple appearances of Jesus. Now listen, those two things go hand in hand. If there was an empty tomb but no appearances, what would we think? Well, somebody stole the body. Duh, right? But since there's appearances and an empty tomb, uh, we've got to say there's, there's something to that. If there were just appearances but the tomb wasn't empty, we would say it was a hallucination, it was a fabrication. But the Holy Spirit was very careful when he led the men to record this uh, to be as accurate as possible, which is perfectly accurate. The next one, there were women as witnesses. Now, I need to explain this a little bit. Do you think it's interesting that every single gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include the fact that there were two women who were the first eyewitnesses of an empty tomb, a resurrected Savior? Do you know why that's interesting? Check this out. I don't get angry. All I'm doing is telling you uh, what was going on in the cultural uh, history of that time, okay? Women had a very, very low position on the social ladder, okay? Um, their status was, was uh, not what it is today. And, and by the grace of God, part of Jesus including women as the eyewitnesses, he elevated women. He did. But women back then, their testimony was not even admissible in court. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that tragic? But yet, Jesus in all four gospel accounts included that two women did in fact come to the place where Jesus was buried, and they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and Jesus wasn't there. He wasn't there. So what's that got to do with that seems to cast doubt on the whole thing? If women didn't have any, uh, if their, their evidence was, their testimony was inadmissible in court, why is that a big deal? Well, here's why it's a big deal. If this whole thing was fabricated, and these early disciples wrote this and made it up, the last, last thing they would ever do was put down that two women were the first witnesses because everyone would laugh it up to scorn, right? So the only reason that those accounts are recorded for us that there were two women is because, in fact, there were women that were there and there was an empty tomb and they had truth to declare to the whole world, right? Um, there would probably have been a lot of pressure on these apostles that wrote this to remove that, but the Holy Spirit inspired it. It was true. And they each gave their own account from a different angle, um, and that's just interesting to me, isn't it? Now, here's another truth. Here's another truth. Current cultural beliefs. Would you believe that in that day and age, 
Nobody believed in a resurrection from the dead, a personal bodily resurrection. The Jews didn't believe that. They believed that was way out in the future, that it was going to be a corporate resurrection of Israel altogether. They did not believe in a personal bodily resurrection that was divorced from the end of the age. Nobody just resurrected himself in the middle of history. The Greeks certainly didn't believe that. In fact, they thought all physical matter was evil. And the thing you aspired to, the thing you hoped that you could do was escape the body, right? Be liberated from your body, this shell, this prison of your existence. Uh, Not be resurrected in your body. So all of those things are really cut against the grain of... Um, the, the true evidence is for the resurrection. It's interesting that all these things were included. And here's, here's another one, um, the birth of the church. How in the world did these people begin to worship uh, a resurrected Savior? That was just unheard of. You know, they had their own versions of false gods and goddesses. How did this church get born overnight and thousands of followers? If this was a hallucination, if it was just a fabrication, if the details were just uh, muddled and shrouded, how in the world did this happen? How was the church born? It's because Jesus really did uh, rise from the grave, amen? What about the courage of the early followers? If all of this, uh, going to the gallows, getting thrown to the lions, embarrassing and humiliating yourself, being persecuted, facing suffering and ridicule, being made fun of, and they were, all those things were true of the early followers, would you bear that shame and that scorn to support a hoax? No, you wouldn't. Did you know that just about every last one of the early original apostles and disciples of Jesus were martyred? Peter was crucified upside down with his wife watching and his kids watching, history tells us. John, the apostle, was banished to the Isle of Patmos. James, the apostle, was thrown off the top of the temple. None of them renounced their faith. Why? Well, I can tell you it wasn't because them seeing Jesus was a hallucination. That wasn't it at all. It was the reality that this had happened, that this was true, this was to be celebrated, this was to be shared, this was to be rejoiced in. Um, And then here's something that I really want to talk about for a minute. Check this out. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this was written, a lot of people think that the very first written accounts of the resurrection were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not true. Do you know the very first accounts uh, in, in paper and recorded form? of the resurrection was the epistles that Paul wrote. He wrote this chapter in 1 Corinthians about 15 to 20 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the grave, okay? And listen to what he said. This absolutely blows my mind. Check this out. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, just stop there. He's saying this isn't a metaphor, this resurrection. This empty tomb is not just some symbol, some icon. This is reality. He's saying this happened. Three days after he was crucified, Jesus rose from the grave. But he doesn't stop there. Check it out. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive." Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, guys, I don't know if you've ever considered this. This absolutely blows my mind when you consider this. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, look, if you doubt the resurrection, if you have questions in your heart about the sincerity of this account, there are over 500 people who saw Jesus after he rose from the grave, interacted with him, ate with him, talked with him, Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. 
Does that blow your mind? (laughs) He's saying, look, you can corroborate this, okay? You can go and talk to the very people. Listen, you don't have group hallucinations. (laughs) Maybe one person, two person, three people that are just really radical, crazy, devoted, blind, optimistic followers of Jesus, but not 500, not 500 people. And listen, Jesus appeared to them all at the same time just to prove that this one guy didn't have some kind of mushroom trip, okay, out in the desert and came back and said, I saw Jesus. No, 500 people saw Jesus risen from the grave, interacted with him. Most of them are still alive. Go and talk to them. All of these things are evidences that this is true. Is your bucket getting heavier now? Are the doubts disappearing? And these aren't just, you know, internal evidences in the Bible This is external evidences too. Even history preserves some of these things. It's pretty amazing. Do you know some of the most unlikely converts? uh, That's another. I didn't add this, but that's another evidence of the reality and truth of the resurrection. The apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee who wrote this, by the way, and was converted. He would have been the last person that wanted Jesus to to rise from the from the dead. Pharisees were were converted to Christianity. Roman soldiers who crucified him were converted. Why? Because of a hallucination? No, the reality, the truthfulness of this, the power of this. And then there's the transformed lives, the the courage of the new converts. All of those things bear witness to the fact that this was true. You know, uh, Blaise Pascal famously said this. He said, I believe the witnesses that testified to the resurrection, if they let their throats get cut, and they did. (laughs) They did. Many of them went to the lions singing, rejoicing. They went to the gallows with a smile on their face and joy in their heart. Why? Because Jesus really did rise from the grave. Amen? He really did. So that's the first point. And the second point is going to be, what does this mean? And this is the good stuff. This is where I want to camp out for the rest of this message. This is where it gets good, folks. Listen, if the resurrection is true, then that means this, okay? It means everything that Jesus ever said was true right? Have you ever met somebody, they're like, you know, the Bible and Christianity, there's some things I love, there's some teachings, I just, they thrill my heart, I'm exhilarated by them, I'm excited about them, but there's other things I'm not too fond of. I don't, I, I don't really like them, I'm not, I'm not that crazy about them. But listen, if Jesus rose from the grave, then that, <laughs> the argument is not what parts of the Bible do you like and what parts do you not like. Listen, if Jesus rose from the grave, then everything he ever said was true, everything. The hard things and the things that thrill your heart. Everything he said. What we sang earlier, Jesus said, I'll lead the 99 to go and retrieve the lost sheep. That's true. That's a good truth, right? Jesus said, no sinner that ever comes to me with a contrite, humble, broken heart confessing their sin, I will never turn them away. That's true too if he rose from the grave. That's why the first point is, how do we know what happened? We know what happened, okay? We know what happened. So everything Jesus ever said is true. Everything. I mean, you can't... If, if there was something he said that was subjective, that you could kind of, well, I don't really know. I don't, I don't know what he meant by that. No, listen, Jesus said, three days after they kill me in Jerusalem, I will rise again. He said that. He said, destroy this temple, destroy this body, tear it apart, and I'll raise it up again. I'll build it up again. Jesus said that, and he did that. So listen, everything else he said is money. Take it to the bank. The resurrection is like the receipt. We don't have to walk around as paranoid Christians we got the receipt. Have you ever been to the, to the uh, I think the one in Orange City is, is one of the roughest. Um, you've been to the Walmart and they had the receipt people at the, <laughs> they had the receipt people at the exit. 
you ain't getting out of there without your receipt, man. I don't care if you bought a stick of gum. You got to prove that you paid for it and that it belongs to you. Do you know what the receipt, you know what the resurrection really is for us? It's the receipt. It's like, this is true. This is real. Everything Jesus ever said is true. Everything he promised he would do that he hasn't done yet, like return again and right all the wrongs in the world and fix the world too, that's money. I got the receipt. I don't have to walk around paranoid thinking, do I belong here? Am I going to get arrested? Did I really pay for this? No, this is true. You belong to him. He belongs to you. Everything that he said. He'll return to this planet. He'll judge those who don't believe the gospel and also that he's king, that he's God. Listen, that's why in this account in Matthew 28, the women had both fear and great joy. Because they realized who this man was that walked out of that tomb alive. He was God in human flesh. And the gospel really is good news. He really did forgive us. He really did cleanse us and declare us blameless and righteous. All those things are true now. We know that. See, here's my pet peeve about Christianity. My pet peeve is people that don't believe that the Bible is relevant to everyday life. They think, yeah, there's Christianity. It's kind of like this, there's people in their stained glass prisons and they're blind and, and they're all huddled together and they're holy huddles and they're just kind of hoping against all hope that some of this may be real. It's like, listen, dude, no. Uh, the Bible is not a, an escape from reality. Um, the Bible is actually a window into reality. Let me tell you what I mean. A little bit later in that chapter that I quoted from earlier, the Apostle Paul did you know that chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, the entire chapter is devoted to the glories of the resurrection? Why the resurrection is so important. He spends about 45 verses talking about everything that the resurrection means, how if Jesus was raised from the, from the dead, he's the first fruits. We're going to be raised from the dead as well. We're going to have glorious bodies. We're going to have immortal bodies. We're going to have indestructible bodies. I mean, all of, all of the excitement that comes from knowing that, but then Paul sums all of that up in the very last verse uh, in that book, and he says this. Check this out. Therefore. Now, the therefore is pointing back to that whole chapter, the reality and the truth of the resurrection. What does it mean? Jesus rose from the, from the dead. So what? How does that change my life? How does that give me hope to face life the rest of today and tomorrow when I go out, th when I go out there? Paul says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, let me ask you a question. Just be honest. We've all come here on Easter morning to celebrate the resurrection. Are those things true of you and in your life? Are you steadfast? That means you're firm. That means nothing that happens to you rocks you or shakes you or casts you down into hopelessness and despair. Could you say that that's true this morning? Don't raise your hand. Just think, just ask yourself the question and be honest. Because I will tell you, if that's not true, then the reality and the, and the power of the resurrection hasn't settled in your heart. That's why I'm preaching on this. Paul says, if you believe that this really happened, and it did happen, right? It's not if it happened, it's since it happened. Therefore, be immovable. Don't be shaken easily. Don't be cast down in despair. Don't be hopeless. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about this. What is your, what's your stability and your security and your identity? What have you tethered it to in this life? What have you tethered it to? Money? Man, my bank account changes every day. If my happiness and stability is attached to how much money I have in the bank, I'm sunk, guys. I mean, I'm a church planner to begin with, right? 
What about beauty? You know, the Bible says uh, beauty is passing, it's fading, right? <laughs> but the fear of the Lord, that endures forever. What is it? Is it is, so is it wealth? Is it beauty? Is it uh, how people think of you? Is your happiness and your joy and your stability tethered to people's opinion of you? As long as you're pleasing them and you're rendering services that are check quality, what is it? Because Paul says, if you're tethering your stability, your identity, and your joy to all of those things, you're going to be shaken. You're going to be shaken. I've got a friend who has some in-laws in the Bahamas. And, you know, when I think of the Bahamas, when I look at the Bahamas on the map, one word comes to my mind, vulnerable. You know, hurricane season's coming, brother, every year, right? And I wouldn't, I'm just being honest, if you live there or have property there, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to insult you this morning. I just wouldn't want to go there, man. <laughs> I mean, you're stuck. It's like a tiny chain of islands in the southeast portion off the, the coast of Florida, kind of in the middle of the Atlantic there off the coast. And when hurricanes come, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You're vulnerable. But my friend tells me that there are little cottages there that have literally withstood hundreds of hurricanes. They've stood there for centuries. They haven't moved they haven't been torn down. The roofs haven't been blown off. And I got, I got a question. My question is, what are those things made of? <laughs> I mean, I want to go live in one of those houses. I want to talk. I want to meet the architect. I want to, I want to have lunch with the builder. I want to know what the materials are, right? I want to base my house on those, on those houses. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, look, God wants you to live the kind of life that's immovable. You're firm. That means you're not shaking. You're not, you're not budging. And so many Christians I, I see, I see it in my own heart. I want, don't you want this? I want my life to reflect that reality. Is that because of the resurrection, I don't have to be shaken. I don't have to be moved. Nothing's going to destroy my confidence. Why? Because it's not attached to anything in this world. It's attached to the reality of if Jesus rose from the dead, everything he said is true. And I'm banking on that. And so often when we just hear biblical stories, it's hard to see it. Let me give you... Let me give you a, a little window into the first or second century of Christianity, okay? The year is 250 AD in Rome, almost at the zenith of Rome's power. They had occupied, I've been told, 5 million square miles, something like that. They conquered everything. They're at the top of their game. It's 250 AD, but something terrible happens. A plague breaks out. It's called the Cyprian Plague. Horrible, horrible plague. A lot of uh, doctors and physicians today think it may have been the smallpox. They didn't have vaccinations. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have anything. didn't have modern medicine. So check this out. During that time in Rome, um, of course, they worshipped all the false gods and goddesses. They had a whole pantheon of Zeus and Aphrodite and, and uh, Apollo and all the false gods and goddesses. Um, and Christianity represented a threat to them. In fact, they thought Christians were stupid, they were dumb, they were checked out, they were out to lunch. They thought that they were um, cannibals because they had the Lord's Supper together like we're going to have this morning after the service. They thought that they were atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods and goddesses. They thought they were nuts. And they would even blame tragedies on Christians that happen. They're saying, you're not worshiping Zeus, so the storms, the weather, the plagues... Um, and listen, Christians, they were unmoved by that. Didn't shake them. They didn't budge. They were living countercultural lives, which doesn't mean they were picketing the Romans. They were having protest, uh, you know, and not buying the... Uh, anyway, that's another sermon for another day. Uh, they weren't trying to elect Christians into... Uh, you know, they weren't trying to, to wedge, kind of manipulate their way into, into the top to have control of the Roman Empire. That wasn't what Christians were doing back then. 
They were serving. They were living counter-cultural lives, and the Romans sat up and take notice. But they still made fun of them. They still persecuted them. And then when the plague broke out, the Cyprian plague in 250 AD, something strange happened. All the Romans got out of Dodge. I mean, listen, if your religion can't help you, then chuck, chunk it, right? And get something that does. All these Romans that worship the false gods of medicine and the false goddess of, of health, you know what they did when this plague broke out? And it was taking up to 5,000 people's lives a day. I mean, wrap your mind around that. 5,000 people a day in Rome died because of this plague. It was very extremely contagious. And how did these Romans react? You know what they did? They fled the town. The doctors fled town. The emperor, two emperors, this lasted 20 years. Two emperors died because of this plague. People were petrified. And nobody was immune. Pagan pre, uh, priests and priestesses, they died. Noblemen, they died. The most fiercely loyal uh, worshipers of the false gods and goddesses, they died. Doctors died. You know what doctors did? They left. They got out of Dodge. They left town. So you know what happened? You can imagine. Use your imagination here. All these people who were sick had no one to care for them. Nobody to care for them. Their loved ones would either leave town or wouldn't touch them. They wouldn't bathe them. They wouldn't feed them. They wouldn't get them the treatment they needed. It was horrible. One of the doctors said this. This, this is an uh, eyewitness account. The intestines are shaken with a continual vomiting. The eyes are on fire with the infected blood. It means blood was coming out your pores. In some cases, the feet or other body parts are infected and must be amputated. Blindness and deafness often accompanied the plague. So, let me ask you a question. If you were a Christian and all the people that were considered to be your enemies were dying of this plague, wouldn't you be tempted? Wouldn't you be tempted to be like, hey, how's them idols working for you there, huh? <laughs> how's, that, how's the God and goddess, how's Zeus helping you out with this? Wouldn't you be tempted to pick at their funeral, <laughs> you know, serves you right? You know what the Christians did? Check this out. All the Romans fled the city. You know what the Christians did? They saturated the city. All of them. They flocked to where the need was the greatest. Eyewitnesses tell us that Christians fed and bathed up to 3,000 people a day. They became like a little army of nurses and doctors. Untrained Christians. They fled the city and many of them gave up their life to serve their enemies. It's amazing. That's why when you read history and you read about the spread of Christianity, you're going to see a peak. About 300 AD, we're told that most Roman cities had converted to Christianity. Do you know why? Now you know why. Because look, how do you look at that and say, yeah, the resurrection was a hoax? What, wasn't it? <laughs> they just hallucinated, right? A hallucination is going to cause somebody to live that kind of a countercultural, fearless life where you're immovable, you're unshaken. You know that what you do now matters, and there's a resurrection for you coming? That's what happened. And most of those cities were converted to Christ because of that. Check this out. This is what one church leader, Dionysius, he was the bishop of Alexander, he said this after the plague. He survived miraculously. He said, Most of our brothers and sisters showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of others. Heedless of danger... They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, but it was a period of unimaginable joy for Christians. <sighs> Wrap your mind around that. Did you hear that? It was a period of unimaginable joy for Christians. 
Why is it that if something like that happened now, it would be a period of unimaginable terror for Christians? I would submit to you, it's because they were able to wrap their heart and minds around the reality of a resurrection in the way that we're not, in a way that we don't. Because listen, the anthem of the early Christians was the resurrection. Remember the resurrection. It wasn't like, remember the Alamo, okay? Like they're angry. It's remember the resurrection. We have hope. Paul would write that to Timothy when he was in jail about to die. He said, remember Christ, our risen Lord. Remember that. Don't forget that. It wasn't something that they would pull out once a year on Easter and celebrate, which it's good to do. I'm glad we're having this Easter celebration. Listen, that was the lens through which they viewed all of life. There is a resurrection coming. Therefore, I will not be moved. I will not be shaken. And I will know that everything that I do now matters. That's what it says in that verse. Knowing this, that your work in the Lord is not in vain. You know, listen, the resurrection doesn't cause you to be uh, just passively disengaged, right? It, it doesn't make you be resignate. You're not resigned. It's like, oh, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah. Neither does it make you aggressively uh, resolved. Like you're going to, with a stiff upper lip and just a lot of resolve and, and, and gall and willpower and pull yourself up by your bootstraps No. It, what it does create is a really humble recognition that, listen, I belong to Jesus. Everything he said is true. He's the captain of my soul. He has conquered death and the grave. By his victory, um, I can face life. I mean, how, how is it that so many people are shaken just by the thought, that, the thought of dying? We're so easily shaken by that. Or bankruptcy. Or if, somebody, if I hurt somebody's feelings. I mean, listen, we're held captive just by somebody else's opinion of us. It's because we haven't grasped the reality and the power of the resurrection. That's why. I love the message version of this text in 1 Corinthians. Um, it, says, it says this, With all this going on for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the Master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time. Man, can I be honest? I want that. I need that. I feel so fragile sometimes. Do you? I feel so fragile. I feel so easily provoked. I feel so easily shaken. If just the tiniest thing goes wrong in my life, it casts me down in despair. It makes, when I'm not thinking about these things, it makes me radically insecure. Am I alone? Anybody, anybody in here radically insecure? Anybody in here held hostage by other people's opinion of you? You get that text and says, we need to talk. And you're like, oh, you melt. You melt. You got to know, like, hey, everything okay? Sure, we can meet up tomorrow. What's on your mind? Right? Guilty. Hey, listen, the Bible speaks to reality. It does. The Bible's not an escape from reality, my friends. It's not. We're not all in here this morning just, you know, swaying back and forth to Kumbaya, and we're in our stained glass prison, and we're really out to lunch on reality. No, I, I would submit to you. God has given us the clearest view of reality. We belong to the risen king. We got the receipt that everything Jesus ever said he would do, he has done, and he will be faithful. We belong to him, and listen, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing. There's no condemnation, praise God. The cross proves that. The resurrection says there's no separation. We belong to the king. He is ours. doesn't make you passively... Resigned, it doesn't make you actively and aggressively resolved. It makes you humbly recognize all the things that Jesus said were true. Tim Keller said this. Check this out. Check this quote out. It's silly to say that to believe in the hope of glory makes you passive. How could it make you passive? 
No. Finally, you can be active. Finally, you're afraid of nothing. Let me tell you who should be afraid, Keller says. People who say, all I have is 70 or 80 years and I'm trapped in this time period. I don't know if there's anything past that. Therefore, I've got to get all my happiness right here. If anything goes wrong with my happiness, if anything goes wrong with my health, I'm finished. Keller says, who's afraid now? Right? (laughs) Guys, let this reality soak in your mind and your heart this morning. This is not all there is. You know what Jesus said in the book of Revelation, chapter 21? He said, behold, I make all things new. He said that. Now, that's not wishful thinking, guys. I mean, without the resurrection, it is. Listen, without the resurrection, we're all just whistling in the dark here this morning. But because Jesus made good on his promise in the resurrection, we know Jesus is going to make all things new. I mean, he's already started in our own hearts, hasn't he? If anyone is in Christ, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. We're new creations. It's already started right here. And Jesus says, one day I'm going to come and finish my work. He who begun a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And listen, that means we don't have to be afraid. Just like those early Christians in 250 AD, how could they rush the city and flood the parts that they probably knew they were going to die? How could somebody in the first century in Africa go and, and, and join a leper colony knowing that they're never going to get out again, but they knew that the gospel needed to be preached there. How can we do those? How can we face death smiling? Because we know we've got nothing to fear. We've got nothing to hide. We've got nothing to lose, right? That's what the gospel tells us. That's what the resurrection tells us. Those truths are a reality. That's what they mean. Of what, uh, what the Apostle Paul goes on to say in that chapter. He says, he taunts death, actually. You know, Christianity is the only religion in the world that can taunt death. He says, hey, is that all you got, death? Seriously? That's your best shot? That's your best blow? Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, grave, where's your sting? You know, the lower you lay me, the higher he'll raise me. This is probably the biggest, I think, effect from the resurrection for Christians, and we miss it. We don't get it. We don't talk about death. Christians don't either. We don't go to funerals. We don't talk about dying at the water cooler. We hate the thought of death. We despise it. We reject it. We ignore it. But guys, 10 out of 10 people die, (laughs) right? And our day is coming. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to pay taxes. No, it says it's appointed unto men um, to die and then to stand before judgment. That's what the Bible says. It's going to happen. And yet we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to face it. We don't want to face the reality that one day some kid that can barely read is going to walk into a graveyard and look at a tombstone with your last name on it, mispronounce your last name, pick his nose, and then wonder what's for lunch. It's hard for us to imagine that. One day somebody's going to refer to you in the past tense. It's going to happen. And let's be honest, that petrifies a lot of people. It does. You know, there's even, uh, it's a lucrative business, this fear of death. One of the top fears in the world, by the way. Thanaphobos. It means fear of death. People pay hundreds of thousands, some people millions of dollars to try and cope with this fear, right? You know how Christians, we don't cope with it. We don't cope with that, with the thought of death, the truth that death is coming. We celebrate it because, listen, you know what the resurrection has done? It has turned death from an executioner into a gardener, right? We don't have a prison bus coming to pick us up at death, guys. We have a limo, right? Remember that movie Ghost? 
I don't know, maybe that's not the best movie to mention from the pulpit. But listen, you remember, there was a scary, I watched that as a kid, it was a scary part where like these demons came up and drug all the bad guys down to hell. You remember that? I was scared to death. You know, that's the furthest thing from the truth for what Christians are going to experience. We're going to be carried into the bosom of Christ, into the presence of the Lord. We are. Death is not our executioner, it's our gardener. It's just a threshold into eternity with Jesus. That's all it is. How do we know that? Because the Bible says that, because of the resurrection, right? There was a guy, and his name was um, Phocus, P-H-O-C-U-S, and he was a famous martyr in the history of the church. Around 300 AD, after the Cyprian plague, after Christianity was spreading, there was a new emperor. Um, man, I, was, <laughs> I almost called him Diotenacious, but that's like something you eat, isn't it? <laughs> Diotenacious earth. Anyway, uh, Dio. Dio Diocletian, I think was his name. Anyway, he hated Christianity, he hated Christians, and he wanted to, to root them all out and destroy them. Well, there was a, an eminent saint, and his name was Saint Focus, and he was a, a gardener, and he would find persecuted Christians. He would let them stay with him in his cottage. He had a beautiful garden. He would feed them. He would let them rest there. Well, listen, soldiers were dispatched from the emperor. Find this man, Focus, and execute him. So soldiers weary themselves looking for this guy. They couldn't find him anywhere. Well, they stumbled into this cottage, they knocked on the door, and they said, look, we have been uh, dispatched from the Roman emperor, and there's a man named St. Focus, and we're supposed to find him and execute him. And he said, you know what? You have come to the right place. I happen to know this man very well. He's a very dear friend of mine. He said, but look, you're tired, you're wearied. Please, come inside, sit. This is a true story. Sit. He fed them. He, he, he offered them water to drink. He offered to, to wash their feet. He even offered to let them sleep in his home. And he said, you know what? He's a very good friend of mine. And in the morning, I will go and bring him to you. And you can do what you need to do. So these soldiers were so grateful that they found this, this kind-hearted, humble servant. And in the morning, um, when they woke up, do you know what St. Focus had done? He had gone out in the garden and dug his own grave. He spent all night preparing his heart to meet Christ. He dug his own grave. And in the morning, he, ca he came to them. And he said, um, I know the man that you seek. I'm him. I'm St. Focus. And they said, we, we were expecting somebody that was monstrous, somebody who was hateful, and somebody who was angry and had provoked the emperor. And he said, no, it's, I've committed no crime, but I understand your duty to Rome. And he said, I'll offer my life, you know, because those Roman soldiers will be killed if they didn't meet their objective. And so he kneeled down, and he stretched out his neck, and he convinced these Roman soldiers to execute him. And, I, and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, you hear stories like that, and it's so over the top. You're like, ah, I know. And look, I know. I probably wouldn't do that. I'd probably be like, you know, I know this man, and, and he's over there. You know, he's three miles down the road. Take a, take a left. Here's a GPS. But listen, what was it that they had that we don't? What's changed? I think we've lost the beauty and the power of the resurrection. I do. Because the resurrection tells us that everything that Jesus said is true and that we can trust him and that, look, we can smile at death. Isn't that a beautiful thought? I mean, the Bible calls death this enemy. How can something that separates friends, separates lovers, takes away your children prematurely? I mean, we look around and we see hospice centers and hospitals and roadkill. We see trees dying. Death is everywhere. But the resurrection tells us that, listen, Jesus conquered death. He has the keys, the Bible says. You know what that means? He owns it. He possesses it. And this king died for us. So that, listen, death, the Bible says, it's just a shadow. You know that, that psalm that's read at every funeral? You know that, that, that verse in Psalm 23? It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Let me tell you a story. I was on the interstate 
few years ago during bike week. I've told you this story before, so forgive me for the redundancy. And a guy on a motorcycle in front of me, uh, he dropped something. He got off to pick it up. He darted in the middle of traffic going 70 miles an hour. And I'll never forget the sound of that guy getting hit by a loaded down semi hauling Mercedes-Benz cars. He got hit and knocked about 20 foot up in there and landed with a thud um, on the concrete. And I thought the guy was dead. But he survived miraculously, and I was able to preach the gospel to him. But anyway, I'll never forget that truck hitting him. I mean, I saw it. I was two cars behind him. And, and, and I often thought of Psalm 23. Um, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Would you rather get hit with a semi-truck or the shadow of the semi-truck? Which one? Which one would you rather face? As a Christian, would you rather face uh, the semi-truck of death? Or would you rather let Christ... Take that hit for you. Substitute. Take your place. Exchange. Trade places with him. He takes the brunt of death, and you get the glory of being escorted into the presence of Christ. He takes the wrath of God that we justly deserve for our sins and disobedience, and we get his righteousness. He gets on the cross, and and the curse of God and, 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 and anger and judgment is poured out on him, and we get grace. We get forgiveness. We get peace. That's what the Bible says, all because of the resurrection. So that's what it means. That means that you can face opposition with joy. It means you can face suffering with hope. And it means that you can go to the gallows with a smile or get that diagnosis or read your banking statement, whatever it is, guys. Therefore, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Stand firm. Because, listen, death is swallowed up forever, the Bible says. Right? It's devoured. It's drowned. We don't have to face the fear of it anymore. And I'm, and I'm closing with this. Listen, Jesus offers you the same peace and grace and forgiveness now that he did the first followers. Jesus says, whoever is thirsty, come and let him drink the water of life. He doesn't say that the good people can come and get a drink of water. You know, the world will tell you that. Every other false religion in the world will tell you, you know, follow these pillars, obey this list, then you can come and, and, and maybe God can help you out a little bit. No, the Bible says Jesus says, if you're thirsty, do you feel guilt? Do you feel shame? Do you feel alienation and and fear and condemnation because of your sins? Listen, friends, Jesus extends his hands. The symbol in the Bible for God is, is Jesus stretched out on a cross, not pointing from heaven, accusing you and judging you. Jesus says, whoever is thirsty may come. All you who are labored down and exhausted and wearied in your sin, come and find peace, come and find forgiveness.